0: Welcome to the Board Meets World podcast. This was my first live podcast since college. And looking at me from across the table this time was my buddy, Colin Clapple. Colin is going for his master's in stats from Boston University, and he and I became close talking about baseball stats. He did exactly that this time. So we talked about five statistical trends out there that you need to be paying attention to really cool and interesting stuff from a freaking whiz kid of a guy enjoy it All right, I'm here with uh, with Colin Clapham. This is uh, this is a big moment in the Board Meets World podcast history because this is the first time in a while since college I'm doing one face to face with someone. So I finally got finally got a friend in Boston who would come talk to me in front of a microphone. Um, Colin is here today because he and I hit it off uh, about a year ago talking about stats in baseball, and it has been the the nucleus of our friendship ever since. Um, and and so he's going to come and, and kind of extend his wisdom that he has provided to me with all of you today. So, Colin, how you doing?
1: Good, good. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, do you want to tell the people what you just left to to, to be here? Is, yeah, is that yeah. Confidential so information?
1: I kind of snuck out of uh, class. I'm getting my master's in statistics right now. Um, so that's kind of, is, uh, like you said, how we met and started talking about stats and everything like that.
0: I think so. this is part of the thesis, right? This is part yeah,
1: exactly. This is course credit right now. If, if you yeah. watch
0: Westworld, this is like what was. This is part of the maze. Oh, yeah, okay. No. Yeah. yeah. Well, we know what to do with you after this. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, once once you have that magical thing called free time again, yes, exactly. You can do that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Colin and I have been trying to get this together for a long time, but his schedule is is uh, is you know, all you grad student folks out there know exactly what his schedule is like. So thank you very much for for being yeah, here, Colin. And exactly. we're gonna kind of run through five. Kind of statistical topics. Um, it is the, the start of baseball season. Basketball season is being phased out, um, so we're going to go ma- mostly baseball on this and kind of some some stuff to keep an eye on throughout this baseball season. Some really interesting stuff. Um, but you you are a graduate of uh, Villanova University. Yes. And so you know you just had you are in the middle of one of the most successful basketball runs in history. But you still have a problem with the way people predict March Madness.
1: Yeah, I think um, the big thing is a lot of times you see predictions are wrong um, and they will, you know, a lot of these sites like five thirty eight will explain their methodology and they'll use these big terms that they don't really define um, and they don't explain why their models fail or why their predictions fail. Um, so the big one, the big article they came out with right before March Madness was they were Going to build this model to predict upsets. And they basically wanted to say, all right, like, what's the percentage that this team's going to upset that team? And they mentioned a few terms that they really didn't define. So they mentioned machine learning, they mentioned Gaussian kernels, some of these, like, lofty subjects that the average, you know, sports fan shouldn't know, might know, might have heard before. But um, essentially, uh, what they're trying to say is, uh, they built some model that took all of these inputs in prior years, so they actually took the last 15 years worth of basketball both pre-regular uh, season and postseason, um, and they tried to compare this year's field. Um, they're trying to find the closest comparison over the past 15 years, um, and they were comparing this year's team to uh, whatever outcome happens to their closest comparison. Um, So the machine learning part is uh, you have all these inputs, you know what the outputs are, so you have this, it's called supervised learning when you know what the outputs are, Mm -hmm. and obviously unsupervised is when you don't know what the outputs are, but in this case you had all of the outcomes because you know who won. Um, So they took all these inputs, you know, they say oh, like the 2018 Villanova team is just like the 2013 Kentucky team, things like that, and you know, that team got to the final four. Um, The problem with the way these models are built, uh, and it gets into this term they use, Gaussian kernel. So um, if you think about it like you're graphing wins versus points scored, you have like that XY graph, Mm -hmm. most people can picture that in their heads. Um, What they do with these models is they include all of these variables. So it's points scored, assists, rebounds, all these things, and you have all these dimensions. And they try to compact it back down um, and they try to cluster all these teams together um, so the kernel is essentially the the shape of what that cluster is um, sure. and it's it's you know you're trying to make these little pockets so you have you know t- teams that are similar you know in the mm. same pocket um, and then the gaussian part is uh... i think we were talking about this last week where you have a normal distribution normal gaussian is synonymous, basically. Bell curve. Um, essentially, yeah, yep. exactly. So um, so what they did was they, you know, plotted all these teams that were similar, dissimilar to each team, and they were comparing them. The problem, uh, and why these models fail, is they don't explain how far away certain teams are from the team that you're looking at. So, uh, you know, I could have this year's Virginia team be so similar to another team that it's easy to predict their success and I pick Virginia because it's ironic that it's not easy to predict their success but yeah. um, but you could have Villanova where they're not like any other team or they're you know they're similar to some teams but not to the degree that they were that Virginia was to another team so um, that distance between points is where the um the sim- the, uh, the breakdown happens with predictions Um, And they don't really get into why they chose the shape of of that kernel, you know, why, you know, there's not really a good method right now to choose the shape of those pockets. You kind of like guess and check. Um, So you could have done linear, you could have done quadratic, line, wiggly line, something like that. Um, But, you know, they throw these terms out there, they don't really explain them. um, And it's just kind of good to know why they fail, how they fail, things like that. So.
0: so in the case of Virginia mm-hmm. there's there's a certain variance in between them and, and kind of their their neighbor. Massive. Yeah. yeah. So so there might be a team that is most similar to Virginia that they're that they're basing predictions off of. However that, that even though that's their most similar neighbor, it's actually nowhere close statistically. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Okay. So and, and, you know, the smaller the sample size, obviously the greater the distance between the points because, you know, you could have teams that are revolutionary. I mean, obviously, they're you know, if you're going back the past 15 years, you have a lot of win-loss records. So you know, a lot of outcomes. But um, yeah, they they don't really get into why they chose that method, and then what the residuals were between those teams.
0: So if this is a method that's inherently flawed, albeit detailed and and certainly contrived with a lot of, of good intentions, what is a <laughs> What is the best way that we can predict outcomes then?
1: Yeah, so I wouldn't go as far to say that it's flawed. I would just say that with any of these methods, there's some level of objectivity um, that should be communicated. So I know I have a lot of friends in the past who have built models, quote unquote, uh, in Excel where they say, all right, I'm just going to copy and paste Points, rebounds, assists—anything that's available on ESPN, FanGraph, whatever—and um, I'm going to run simple linear regression, and that's going to be what predicts my, you know, my model. There are issues inherent in that. I mean, it's great that you're going at it, you know, from that perspective, um, but you know, you run into issues with variable selection. How do you say that one variable is more important than another? You know, maybe you're missing some. Maybe you have too many. Maybe you overfit. And, you know, you're not accounting for variance. So um, there's a lot of nuance that goes into it. Um, I think the big thing is um, just being, for at least statisticians at least, or even if you're just a casual sports fan and you want to get into a little bit of the math, is be as transparent as possible. So if you make a model, say, hey, I have this model that says this, but it could be flawed because I didn't include something like rebounds or something like that.
0: Fair enough. Yeah, I think uh, thinking back to my my own experience when I was cutting my teeth as a as a wannabe sports blogger in in college was I had worked with I'd worked for this blog called the Sports Quotient and it was this kind of like pseudo Bleacher Bleacher Report but aimed at college students trying to trying to like build a, a base for what they're writing about and I had been partnered with this statistician I think he was remote he was actually working um, in China and so I would write kind of the 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 output of his his math mm-hmm. um, to explain things, and I remember there was a it was right when when Vivek Ranadive had suggested that the Sacramento Kings cherry pick and had run run basically five on four um, where they have they have an offensive player under the goal the other team's goal, um, and what that would look like statistically, and so you can kind of guess how that would look, and and, and you know you you factor in you know what's what's the what's the average field goal percentage at an uncontested layup at the rim you know you figure that in for how many possessions that would do and you know you can get to a point where you know it makes sense but it takes it takes some working of unsmoothing over of okay you know there's some there's some leap of faith that you have to take mm-hmm. in terms of stats and I remember we, we just got crushed on I mean by crushed I mean like three comments on this mm-hmm. thing from, yeah. from random people actually I had posted it on Reddit that's what it was. And on Reddit, there were some people that found it interesting of like, okay, a thought experiment. But then there are other people, exactly like you're saying, of like, you know, there's no methodology described here. And it's a very fair criticism of saying, you know, where did this number come from? You know, like, why why, why is this here, this here? And it's just kind of that idea of like, you know, you can sound smart, you can throw numbers around, but you have a, a responsibility, I think, to to the people reading to mm-hmm. explain what you're doing and yeah. not just treat yourself as this, like, you know, entity that can just come up with these things and you're supposed to, you're supposed to believe it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the best stats are the ones that, you know, are meaningful, have context and, you know, a a casual sports fan can pick it up and say, Hey, like, I can understand that without knowing what goes on under the hood. Sure. Like, no. And it's, you know, I think it's important to remember that ESPN is a business and a lot of what they do on on-screen graphics are thought experiment experiments in what would be interesting to people who are watching this. Mm-hmm. You know, is it wacky for me to put up? Hey, this guy hits five hundred on Thursdays when it's raining. You know, right. that may not be inherently important, but it may be interesting and it may get viewers to tune in. So, mm-hmm. they're a business; they need to make money, so they need to come up with these things, and that's kind of goes into their decision making.
0: Yeah, and I think ultimately broadcasting is going to go in a place where you have kind of these modes of how you want to watch it and and for bigger games you already see this with with ESPN especially you know for the national championship in football you could watch the coaches' room, and you could hear from Kevin Sumlin and and um, you know uh, God Mike Van Gundy from Oklahoma State them talking about the game, <coughs> and you're watching coaches watch the game, and that's just an interesting way to watch it. There's also the sky cams and the Homer the Homer Vision or whatever you want to watch, mm-hmm. but I think that ultimately it would be interesting to get to a point where you know, statistics aren't getting the you know, the kind of the, the heavy side of statistics aren't getting thrown into the general broadcast, but it is a way that you can watch the game is through a lens like that where there's more graphics yeah, that are that are more like uh, in depth with stats.
1: Yeah, and as, you know, baseball kind of spearheaded the whole let's collect as much data as we can and it's being collected a lot more in other sports. I know I've heard that in soccer, you know, you've got players who wear these devices that track their movements on yep. the field, and you've just got all of this data. And the big problem, at first at least, was we have all of this, these numbers. What do we do with them? Mm-hmm. We don't want to waste them. So that's where you get into the problem of let's just throw all these things out there. Let's calculate all these different ratios, and you know, hope something sticks. Hope something's important. So right.
0: And there's kind of this dissonance too of as a fan, you're using a certain set of numbers, or as a writer, you're mm-hmm. using these set of, certain set of numbers. But the teams themselves and the decisions you're criticizing with numbers are using a different different. I mean, not, it's not radically different, but they're using a different calculus. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think that that the the amount of information kind of creates these almost like pockets of elitism, mm-hmm. whether it's yeah. it's team controlled or league controlled or or you know entity-controlled, like, ESPN and 538. Yeah, um, but yeah it's, it's a weird barrier to crack.
1: It's so... I mean, I guess the best example of that would probably be, like, the Phillies when they were under Ruben Amaro. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was such a purist, quote-unquote, and he, you know, they were light years behind everyone in terms of analytics, and didn't help them all that much for the most part. I mean, they did win a World Series and then, you know, NLCS, but... They were light years behind, and it kind of hurt. It's been hurting them now, and you know, I'll touch a little bit on on Gabe Kapler a little bit later. But um, it's interesting to see, you know, the dichotomy between the people who are the purists in each sport and the people who really buy into analytics. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely, and and as we kind of move into this this second part here of of, of uh, baseball statistics, I mean sabermetrics kind of has that problem of, of branding and, mm-hmm. and how how accessible those numbers are. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this particular stat is the one that we we had first talked about when we met um, a year or so ago. <coughs> this is R E twenty four, and and it's an interesting to way as kind of a unified metric to um, to to quantify the success of an at bat. Yep. Um, for a player. So take us through RE24. Yeah,
1: so this is um, something I came across uh, when I was actually uh, taking a sports analytics class. Um, so RE stands for Run Expectancy, um, and 24 is the possible number of combinations when you come up at bat um, for situations. So you could have no outs, no one on. You know, two outs, bases loaded. Um, and there's 24 different combinations of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and with that, you have different run expectancies for each scenario. Um, So what they do is they create this table for all 24 scenarios you can come into, um, and they take the number of uh, runs that were scored in that scenario, and they divide it by the number of times that happened in a season. So that's basically your score. Uh, And this can range anywhere from 0 to, you know, over 2, let's say. Um, So RE24, then, is calculated uh, by you take uh, the number of runs expected after the at-bat, minus the number of runs expected at the beginning of the bat, at bat, plus however many runs scored. So let's say you come up to bat, no outs, no one on, hit a home run. Um, Runs expected at the end of the bat are same as before, so those um, basically go to zero, uh, and then you add one because you scored a run. So your RE24 for that is one. Um, Now why I like this stat is... um, it's easy to interpret for someone who is below a casual level of watching baseball. So, you know, somebody picks up a stat sheet in a given season and they look at batting average and they see all these guys, this guy hits 280, this guy hits 310, this guy, there's no context around it really. It's, you know, you don't know what league average is. You don't know how he compares to other people on his team um, you don't know if, you know, he's like Ben Revere he only had singles or something like that. Um, what's nice about RE24 is that value is centered at zero. So you can actually have a negative RE24. Mm-hmm. Um, so guys who come up to bat-bat, uh, bases loaded, no outs, they strike out, um, that actually hurts them. That that value goes down.
0: Because the expectation um, is you, you score ex- a certain exactly. value of runs,
1: whether yeah. that's in between zero and one. or mm-hmm. yeah, Yeah. And at the end of that bat, your run expectancy didn't change and you you know you didn't do anything with it so um that that hurts you that's a uh, uh you know and and each each scenario has a different weight to it so with a batting average you strike out you know in any scenario your batting average is going to go down the same amount but mm-hmm. with re 24 it's going to go down by whatever weight that situation has yeah um the nice thing is and I think uh baseball reference does a nice job of calculating this um What they do is, instead of creating a uniform table for every batter, uh, they create a table for every single batter that comes up. So instead of taking the number of runs scored divided by the total number of times that scenario happened in Mm -hmm. a season, they look at that player and they say, all right, Mike Trout came up in this exact scenario and he scored like 20 Mm -hmm. runs out of a hundred possible attempts so that's going to be his weight mm-hmm. so i'm expecting mike trout to do something more than i'm expecting like mike's zeno like you know yeah. those that should hurt mikey z mikey z get healthy please to a, <laughs> to a lesser degree than uh uh to mike than mike trout so um guys who are quote unquote better um, so every player has their own every player expectancy value through this, uh, through this uh, stat calculated by Baseball Reference should have their own table of, of runs expected. And um, is this a season to season? So
0: for, for the general RA twenty four of like I'm just uh, you know I, I just got called up from Triple A I don't have any have any uh, professional batting at mm-hmm. ap- or plate appearances yet. Bases loaded, no outs. I strike out. Mm-hmm. My, the 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 expected value was just say like 0. 0.8 at that point. I was supposed mm-hmm. to get 0. 0.8 of a run at least. Is is that number the the 0. 0.8 number coming from a historical data set of every single time that's ever happened yeah. or is it season to season?
1: Yeah, so you're you're using league average for mm-hmm. that. Um uh obviously since you don't have any sort of a sample. Although as more and more stats are collected from minor leagues and and things like that, um, they might start incorporating that, but then you've got different levels of talent, and, right. and you get into a little bit of gray area there. So, um, but for the most part, guys who are new and fresh, um, they start at zero. They use league average, and then at a certain point, when the sample size is large enough, um, they that's can have when their own way. They weight. have yeah. their own, you know. Um, and the nice thing is, uh, everyone starts at zero at the beginning of the season, and you kind of go up and down the scale as mm. the season goes on. So you can. Really do a good job of tracking, like you know, this guy stayed on top of, of hitting in these clutch situations. Um, you know, doing a good job. Um, I think I saw, you know, they they getting back into objective bands and things like that. You know, Baseball Reference posted uh, bands of you know, who's you know above average, who's good, who's great, exceptional. Um, you know, ranging anywhere from zero to 40. Um, again, arbitrarily chosen, probably because zero to 10, 10 to 20 is clean, even. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a great measure of uh, how clutch someone is, how, you know, opportunistic a team is. Um, I think the interesting thing is uh, you don't see even the most analytically minded managers. Uh, look at this for bringing players up to bat Um, I think my favorite example of this that I was telling you about was uh, I had a final exam where I was doing a report on this stat um, and the night before the exam Joe Madden, in the ninth inning with two outs put John Lester in as a pinch hitter and at the time he had like three hits in his career Mm -hmm. uh, and Lester hit a game-winning hit um, so I added a slide on the end of my report that said how John Lester ruined my final. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, Madden did the same thing last week. He put Lester in <clears throat> in a clutch situation uh, and he made him bunt. So it's not something that has been adopted all that much. Um, I think there are other measures that managers still like. Um, but I think it's something that def- everyone should definitely keep on their radar.
0: Yeah, it's something that if you want to find it, you can go to Baseball Reference and and it'll be in a player's um, yep. batting stats. But if you, it's something that feels. <coughs> intuitive of I you know I know I know you know for the 2007 Mariners that Jose Guillen finished the season hitting 270 mm-hmm. but good god it felt like every time that there was a runner on second that he was scoring a guy um, and and so this stat would kind of allow you to feel that and to look against those those basic stats mm-hmm. and say you know he is an eff- he's an effective hitter not necessarily what well, you know what does 333 mean as a batting average this just tells you the effectiveness in any given situation. I kind of like th- liken this stat to every time I'm watching football with Abby, my girlfriend. Shout out uh, that anytime a, she's she's at square zero with with football, and so anytime a, a you know a run play or any play happens and they get six yards, the whole context of okay, well, it was first and ten, six yards is good. Third and seventeen, six yards not good. Mm-hmm. So in this situation, it's kind of it's kind of. Um, waiting for for that of kind of, and I, I, I'm sure that I think there are, especially for running backs, this kind of stat in football mm-hmm. where it's like the effectiveness of the play. Yeah. So yeah. third and one, you get two yards, is just as important as getting you know five yards on first down.
1: Yeah, I think it's nice, you know, going back to that centering at zero. You know, if a casual fan didn't know about this, they picked up a stat sheet and they looked at all the values of a players on a team, and they saw that there were negative values, there were positive values, there were some zeros people could put two and two together and say, all right, zero must be like an average. Anything positive means that they're doing something good. Anything negative obviously means doing something bad. And I just, I like the nature of that. where like, anyone with some intuition can pick this up and understand it. Whereas if I got a stat sheet of, here's all the batting averages on this team, Etrio hit 350 in 2001, you know, uh, Brett Boone hit like 330, mm-hmm. Guillen hit 270. Like, who, you know, you'd say Ichiro did the best, but, did, like, who was the MVP of that team? Right. You know, it's hard to tell, you know, hard, hard to tell who was clutch.
0: Yeah, so, so so it's labeled as base out runs added on, uh, on baseball reference, and, and just for, for context of you want a stat that, you know, that if if you want an nba defensive stat you want one that that basically puts your best players at the top Mm -hmm. right because that tells you you're doing it right um re24 mike trout has finished six times in the top 10 2017 he was number one uh 2016 he was number one 2017 he was number one despite missing so many games so uh one more reason to uh to just be terrified of mike trout especially (laughs) my friends out in the AL West, um, I love RE24. Uh, definitely a, a, a kind of unified view on on a player's ability to to get it done um, in any given situation. Speaking of of hitting, and this this is kind of a, a different way of of looking at it. And this is something that if you watch, um, kind of watch baseball digitally, if you're watching it on GameCast or um, you know on MLB TV, you'll see things like hit probability. So you know when that ball went up. In the air, there was a hit probability of, of like 30%. And this happened the other day in, the, in a Mariners-Royals game. Um, of there was, a, there was a hit probability of, of, I think, 30%. And each row just could not get to the ball despite that. And I think it ended up being a double. Um, and so the, the idea was like, you know, a better a better fielder would get to that. But where does that 30% number come from? Mm-hmm. You know, like like that feels arbitrary to put up there, but it's actually very much not. So explain hit probability to the audience,
1: yeah. So actually, this is a stat that's derived from um, I don't want to say cutting edge, but uh, it's it's a, a newer field, if you can call it that. I mean, it's been around since the nineteen fifties, but you know, calc calculus has been around for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So in in the math world, this is new, considered new, um, and it's it's they they take a little bit from a field called Bayesian statistics. Um, so you're basically calculating this value of um, probability of a hit given some circumstance Um, so the example that you know that I was thinking of uh, was uh, last I guess it was last week two weeks ago um, in an Astros Padres game Bregman comes up to bat um, he hits the ball he pops it straight up I think the launch speed was like 86 miles an hour Um, Hosmer comes in charges overruns it falls in the infield 10th inning walk off blooper, basically, in the infield, Um, the hit probability on that was 0%, or at least it was reported as 0%. Right. Um, So, essentially, what they do here is they say, what is the probability of a hit given the direction that it's hit, given the angle that it's hit, launch speed, how fast the hitter is, things like that. You're basically pulling all these different variables in. Um, And the way that, you know, that value gets to zero now in all reality that value wasn't exactly zero It was probably like zero point zero 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 one something like that Um, But essentially what you're doing is you're pulling in all these different variables um, that they now track um, And and you can calculate, you know, how probable it is um, given some they call it prior so uh, you know that you know, the ball was hit this many times in this direction and this many times it was a hit. So that's the probability that it's a hit given that. Then you multiply it by, alright, the ball was hit at this speed and X number of times it was a hit out of Y. So you multiply all these numbers together, you string them along. At this park, is that part of it too? Yes. Okay. Yes. So that has a big effect into it too. So obviously it's in Colorado, mm-hmm. it's going to be a different number than Miami, let's say. Right. So um, they take a lot of different factors in, um, and it's, it's you know, it ties back into that problem, quote unquote, of how many different factors do I need to calculate this, you know? Because you could make the argument that, well, what about day-night games? What about, sure. you know, the, the quality of the defense, mm-hmm. you know? Um, there's a lot of different things you can you can lump in there um, and uh, through very different means um, they basically try to calculate the number of dimensions that is most efficient you know because you could Go to infinity for the number of things that you're you're throwing into your model, but at a certain point it just becomes inefficient. It's not explaining much of the variance. So,
0: do you run into the same problem with this? Where, say, we're looking at a ball that, in this case, uh, you know, 83 miles an hour off the bat, 78 78 degrees at as the, the angle or the the uh, the launch angle. Mm-hmm. Do you run into that same problem here that you did in the, the, the prediction models where that ball is getting clustered with another ball that's that's kind of similar based off of the, all the other variables and so, therefore comes up with the, that same number but is actually not that similar to that number?
1: So the, the bigger problem here is is what you're using as your prior. So um, again, you're saying, what is the probability of a hit given X, Y, and Z? Um, and the, the important part is figuring out all right, what are X, Y, and Z, or do I need X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D? Mm -hmm. you know, so, so what you what you do is you basically, um, there are different ways to do this, but you can, you can basically plot, um, however many dimensions, so each dimension is a stat, um, and you say, what is the percentage of the variance explained in this model, um, and at a certain point, that percentage is going to level off, um, and you're going to say, all right, at this point, it's arbitrary, the difference in the percentage of variance that's explained. So I'm just going to cut it off at nine dimensions. So I'm going to say, what are the nine variables that explain this probability the best? And I'm just going to cut it off there, and I'm going to use those top nine. That way, you don't really overfit the model. You, know, you don't run into problems of you know, bias-variance bias trade-off. You can you know, be pretty comfortable with the amount of variance that's explained.
0: Got it yeah lots lots to unpack there and it's it's always good to have kind of a, a frame of reference as to where these stats uh, come from because seemingly every year baseball adds more and more to its to what it can offer viewers in terms of, of that number mm-hmm. uh, but unpacking that is is still important um, it's it's not easy and takes time but but I think it's still worth doing and so that, I mean that's kind of the next direction of, of stats is like how when like the creative side of stats that may, may not be able to, perform the the or the calculus to come up with the stats how do you how do you message and and kind of explain that stat in a way that is bite-sized but not not disrespectfully bite-sized
1: yeah i think there's a, a fine line between um i would say dumbing it down um and uh actually you know being respecting the person who came up with that um especially uh some math people uh, are very proud of, of the way that they, they derive something. Sure. Um, you know, I, I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of people. To me, sports is not something that I sit down and I need to take a notebook out and start writing equations and start calculating things for myself. I think it's, you know, for me at least as a mathy person, it's fun to do that on the side. But at the end of the day, like... I kind of just want to sit down, open a beer, and, you know, watch something. And if, you know, an important stat comes up, then that's great. And it's if it's interesting and it, it makes sense and it has the right context, then that's great. Um, I tend to err on the side of there should be some separation between the commercial side of things where, you know, in the broadcast for the fans, you know, I, I would... I would leave it up more to the fans to kind of go and seek that out more than anything else. I think it's extremely important for the people involved, like managers, GMs, owners, things like that. I think if you're not looking at it, um, they say in Moneyball, um, the guy who plays John Henry says you're a dinosaur. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's very true, especially today, since you have all of that at your disposal. um, I think it's, you know... Extremely important, crucial uh, to fact that into your decision making. Um, but at the same time, you know, the Red Sox had a very a big dilemma this season with signing JD Martinez, where, you know, you can't compete with signing John Carlos Stanton, mm-hmm. um, but you need to bring someone in to at least combat that signing, and you want to get someone who's going to fill the seats. They're a business again. They need to make money, so um, there's always that struggle between the two worlds. It's kind of like an arbitrary thing that can't be quantified, right? So,
0: right. And there's some organizations that are that are colder than others and, and don't care about that, and there's some that I mean, mm-hmm. the Red Sox can be as cold as they want, and there's just some realities about about yeah. this this area, this fan base that that you have to appease to, yeah. um, and it's just that's just the only way it's going to go. Yeah. Um, a, a, a market that is not quite as fervent as as Boston is, at least from a baseball perspective, is, is Philly, mm-hmm. um, which gets into our fourth point. This isn't a stat within itself, but uh, Philly's new manager is Gabe Kapler, former outfielder. Um, you probably remember him from – from he was a Red Sox player, right? He for was, a while. Yeah. Yeah, for, yeah, for a while. Um, he's now a manager, and I'll just read the three first three headlines about Gabe Kapler – from, uh, from Deadspin as the season started. Um, the first one, Gabe Kapler's cosmic brain is putting the Phillies in some tough spots. Uh, four days later, it's what did Gabe Kapler fuck up this time? And then uh, the newest one, which came out yesterday, the tale of Gabe Kapler's bizarre ice cream habit is actually even weirder. Um, two of those three are, are baseball related, but he is uh, he's under a lot of flack because he came in with, with kind of some... Some, uh, some interesting notions about how baseball should be managed, and it is kind of flipping some, some conventional notions on their head, maybe unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, what say you?
1: So, um, Gabe Kapler is extremely, he buys into analytics um, to a greater degree than probably anyone in Philadelphia has in a very long time. Um, I remember when, uh, so I lived in the Philly area for a while, um, and was exposed to a lot of the fickle Philadelphia sports fans who have enjoyed recent success, so expectations are higher than normal. Um, but uh, uh, he, he came into, uh, into Philadelphia um, with a good plan. Um, he buys into, you know, the whole Moneyball idea wholeheartedly, um, to the degree where you know, he will switch outfielders based on if there's a righty or lefty coming up to bat. Um, he loves playing matchups. He gets into very intricate detail with with how he you know matches up every single position on every single play. Um, and he's run into a little bit of trouble. You know, there was one game where he tried to bring a reliever in who hadn't even warmed up yet. So, you know, new manager, you know, trying to get into the swing of things. It's you know, he's making the game a little more fast paced than. It has been, you know, um, so, you know, chalk up that mistake to just him being in on the job for a week. Um, but the big thing uh, and the problem that a lot of the Philly sports fans are having is um, he loves pulling his starters early um, and he loves playing these matchups. So he, he'll bring these relievers in um, very early in the game, fourth, fifth inning, when the starter has only thrown 60, 70 pitches and they're doing pretty well, um, and it would seem like they should be left in for a little bit longer. Um, so his argument is, you know, again, the matchup's going to be better. Third time to the, through the order, the batter's seen them, tw- uh, the pitcher twice, so they're they're you know he's, the pitcher's going to get knocked around a little bit. So he wants to avoid that. Um, so right now, as the rotation stands, it looks like Nola, Arietta Pivetta, Velazquez, and Lively. Um, Based on the data that's been collected so far for this season, um, starters are projected to pitch around 850 innings combined by the end of the season for the Phillies. Relievers are going to pitch around 600 innings, which is almost unheard of. Um, I went back the past 15 years, and there's actually only one team that has pitched that much. Um, and I'll get into that in a minute. Um, but right now there are eight relievers on their active roster. Um, so that is an average of 76 innings per reliever. Um, and a lot of those guys are young guys, so they might not be used to that workload. Um, I know there's one 37 year old reliever, Pat Neshek, I think is, is the, uh, the only old guy on that team. Um, so, or at least the oldest guy on that team. Um, but the problem is, um... The one argument that Kepler's been making is sample size is too small right now it's only been two weeks you know they've played 11 games um, you need to give it a little bit of time you know in moneyball that's the one argument that Brad Pitt was making as Billy Bean was you know sample size is too small you know wait until a little further in the season and you'll see that this works um, I think Gabe has to realize that that sample size argument works in both directions um, so as you know, These matchups start making more and more sense. There's going to be a lot more wear and tear on his relievers. Um, If someone goes down, um, if someone just doesn't pan out, it might be a problem. Um, I went back the past 15 years um, looking at teams with the highest and lowest uh, innings pitched uh, by their relievers. um, And there's three that stood out. So um, 2016 Dodgers had around 600 innings pitched and they won 91 games. Um, so that's really good. I mean, for a team that had Kershaw, I think Ryu was on that team. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of other guys, Blanton might have been on that team. Um, so they had good starting pitching, um, you know. And not that Arietta is the same caliber pitcher of Clayton Kershaw, but Arietta should give you some innings. Um, you know, he's only pitched in two games or at least one game I think so far, and he was pulled early. So. Um, he should give you some more innings, so that that number might vary a little bit. Um, but the second team, uh, so the 2012 Rockies, actually their relievers threw 657 innings, um, which breaks the projections for the Phillies by 60 innings right now. Mm-hmm. They only won 64 games.
0: So so their, their innings pitched as, as relievers was more the product of awful starting pitching yep. versus this is a, a direct strategy by by Kapler to just pitch the relievers more innings. Yep,
1: exactly. I think they did it more out of necessity, Um, and there wasn't really much strategy around, like, oh, let's have this guy pitch in this inning. It was more, you know, I think that was post-Ubaldo. So yeah. Ubaldo was good. So um, You don't really have good starting pitching, so you kind of go to the bullpen, and you just arbitrarily pick whoever's, you know, the most well-rested that day. Um, But the one that was most interesting to me was um, uh, the third fewest innings pitched by a relief staff in 2001 were the Oakland A's. They threw 441 innings, and they won 102 games. And that's the team that is highlighted in the movie Moneyball that kind of is the framework for, you know, the whole idea behind Sabermetrics, or at least to the commercial audience the idea behind sabermetrics um so that is what gabe kapler buys into yet billy bean didn't do what kapler's doing um it's so interesting that you know in the movie if you really think about it besides chad bradford they don't really highlight how bean did with pitching mm-hmm. you know he didn't he didn't you know he, he did, obviously did a lot and obviously they had a really good pitching that year i mean that's it's a lot of hatterberg yeah yeah, yeah, all Hattie. It was all Hattie, um, but it's it's interesting to think about. You know, you get into this dichotomy of if you focus all of your analytics on offense, or you know, to offense to a greater degree, and you go more by feel. You know, more into like the old school scout mentality with pitching. You know, is that the right balance? You know, if if you go all by the numbers, are you going to be successful? Um, and I just I think it's so interesting that that team threw their relief staff through so few innings mm-hmm. um, for a team that won 102 games.
0: Right. A L- lot of ways to skin a cat, which I found out that phrase actually is not skinning an actual cat. It's skinning a catfish, but yeah. it's just referred to as that. Um, so anyways, the, uh, so that, that team is the, the Tim Hudson, Mark Mulder, Barry Zito, uh, Corey Lytle was their fourth starter. So the, uh, the, the, the 2018 Phillies, you mentioned that every, every reliever on that staff is, I mean, the average relieving reliever innings is 78. Um, there wasn't a single pitcher on that Oakland A's staff relief pitcher that went over 78, 78 innings pitch. So it's, it, it's interesting, and it doesn't seem like it has staying power just because there's a lot of just realities about how the starter-reliever relationship works starters inherently go longer because they need five days in rest relievers go less because they might be pitching every day Mm -hmm. so the idea that that you're now going to i mean those are just two truths like i i don't know if there's any there's any doubt in that the only time that that really changes is in the postseason when there's multiple days in between games um so i don't know kind of that that sample size argument of this isn't this isn't something that you necessarily would want to test over time because of those two things.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, I, I think back I you know, and as as I was looking at teams, I was kind of hoping just to make things interesting that one of the teams that won the World Series in the past few years or one of the teams that did really well would be a team that through so few innings, and I had to go all the way back to 2001 to find that. And by the way, in 2001, the Mariners were right in the middle of the pack with uh, in terms of uh, innings pitched for relievers. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's interesting. As the season goes on, you know, as these relievers get more tired, you know, these guys don't have much experience pitching an entire season maybe. Um, does Kapler or whoever has that job in the middle of the <laughs> season, um, does he start to use his starters more? And does he, you know, leave them in for seven, eight innings? I mean, they'll be well rested. Guys like Arietta who have a lot of experience pitching deep into seasons, will have pitched two-thirds of the amount of innings that they're used to pitching by that point. So, you know, they'll be ready to throw seven, eight innings a game, you know, every other week.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's uh, it's definitely an experiment, and you're kind of, you know, with with – with how baseball is and how, how regional it is, um, you know, just knowing that this is kind of the strategy in in Philly and just kind of paying attention to the standings, if nothing else, and seeing how that team's doing, um, they're six and five, right? It's not like they're, they're 0 and 11 to start the season or anything. Um, but it is one of those things that you just want to pay attention to because the strategy is very clear and I don't think there's going to be any deviations in, from that for, for at least the time being. So, uh, definitely something to pay attention to is just how, how well that Phillies team performs in terms of the, the wins, losses, and and also keep an eye on the DL because once once those arms in the bullpen um, start start heading there, then then you kind of have a different situation. Or I mean, if you if you can maintain a, a, a healthy starting rotation, then then maybe this is all for naught. So um, definitely some some live experimentation being being done in, in Philly to keep an eye on. You mentioned the, the 2001 Mariners, which is the note that we will end on. Uh, this is this is one of the weirdest teams in baseball history for sure. Obviously, most wins in a, in a season, 116. Um, but it might be one of the weirder teams in sports history because it's the equivalent of if, God, I don't know, if in basketball next season the Indiana Pacers won 74 games i mean that, that that's that's what it would amount to in terms of a team that is that is not an awful team going all the way to the top but a middle of the road team um you know just torpedoing to to not just a, a division championship to a pennant but to the best record in the history of the sport um so it is it is a very very interesting phenomenon and i'm glad you picked this so that we can kind of um you know i was eight years old at the time at, at the time of, of them going into it and it, it, it kind of seems like a blur but you look back at that team i mean that's 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 Brett Boone that's Mike Cameron um it, not a lot of i mean it's it's not it's Ichiro's first year A-Rod's already out Griffey's already out Randy Johnson's already out so all of these three greatest or Edgar Martinez <laughs> is still there i should say um but it's just a, it's just a very bonkers team yeah. <laughs> in the history yeah, of the sport so so unpack it a little bit um what went into the 2001 Mariners being being as the success story that they were
1: yeah and you'll have to keep me honest with some of the uh some of the stats um but uh but yeah no this is this is it's crazy you know every year you see some teams get you know by mid-season you know they're projected to win 100 games and that's mind-blowing to people. It's, it's, you know, last year I remember the Dodgers and the Astros were projected to win over 100 games and people were, were going crazy. And, you know, it ended up being that those both of those teams eclipsed 100 wins and it was a huge deal. Um, but those teams also kind of backed off towards the end of the season. I mean, they both had extremely healthy leads in their divisions. Um, and they were able to rest starters and they were able to, you know, take it easy you know they obviously still put an effort in but if they had played to their full potential through the season they may have added a couple of wins um winning 116 games is just mind-blowing especially when you consider the fact that in your own division another team won over 100 games right so the oakland a's that year won 102 games um and i think uh just a few of the things that I found. I was I was poking around just to find some interesting things um, about the Mariners that season. Um, so their worst record against a division was actually against the AL West. Um, they, you know, they had a winning record against every division, um, but their worst record, uh, they their winning percentage was six ninety against the AL West, which is which is crazy. Um, still very high. Yeah, I mean it's still higher than most teams have against you know in their entire season so um you know they played the a's uh 19 times and they were 10 and 9 so they were 526 winning percentage against the a's uh and that was the lowest they had every other team they winning percentage was 667 or higher so um they absolutely crushed everyone it's 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 crazy um the other interesting thing i saw and this ties a little bit into um into uh that relief pitching that we were talking about is um that season the Mariners blew 15 saves um, now on average if you look at all 162 games they played in the regular season they beat teams by four more runs um, so they found they, they were the team that scored the most runs in the season and they were a team that allowed the fewest runs as well um, so they attributed a lot of their success to their starters now I know that uh, Joel Pinheiro had like a career year on that team. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other starters that I'm I'm forgetting.
0: Uh, yeah, so we're talking Freddie Garcia, Aaron yeah, Sealy, John mm-hmm. Halama, and Paul Abbott and Jamie Moyer. So so Pinero was the sixth guy on that, but but still that is that is true. He never he never got any better no, for, from that.
1: No, yeah. I mean I know the Sox picked him up for like a season or half a season or something. And Everyone it was did. <laughs> no Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah he was uh, he was picked up by a lot of guys. So. Never really rediscovered his his form. Um, But it just seemed like everyone was clicking. I mean, row hit three fifty. Brett Boone hit, like, three thirty two or something ridiculous like that. Um, You know, they had guys who, you know, it wasn't, like, I think the highest home run total was 35 home runs. Um, And then the next highest might have been below 30. So it wasn't like, you know, they had guys who were hitting 60 home runs. They didn't have, like, a bonds. They didn't, you know, have guys who were knocking out of the park it was it was a freak team right just it 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 doesn't make sense on paper that they should have been that good um but it was just like a total annihilation of the field
0: this is a situation where it's kind of the opposite of of every mariners team that has existed since then of of there were no holes in the lineup and so despite what you're saying being true of, of yeah Boone was the lead homer at 37, um, and then you go you go down and you have you have Mike Cameron at 25, Edgar at 30, 23. Well, the rest of the lineup is still is still solid. You have, I mean you go Wilson, Olerud, Boone, Gian David Bell, Al Martin are probably your two weak spots, uh, but you could do a lot worse than the seasons they had there. Um, and that that kind of lineup. <laughs> basically was, was just echoed at the pitching staff of, of there were no holes. Um, so, I mean, you had just solid starts every single time. And I, I don't know, it's, it's a very hard thing to recreate and it's not like, you know, you kind can, of you can have the Astros model of like you had to, you had to tank to acquire these these great mm-hmm. talents to make that happen. Um, no, no one's gaming to become the 2001 Seattle Mariners despite them being the most successful team in history. Yeah. Is that because... Their strategy came with a lack of stars, and ultimately you need stars to win, or, or or, why is that?
1: You know, it's interesting. I I was thinking about the Astros a few years ago. Um, they they picked up a few guys. They drafted a few guys that picked up a few guys, um, and they came out and said, our strategy is um, we got these guys who hit a lot of home runs, and they also strike out a lot. Mm-hmm. We're just going to throw that line about there, and it, it paid off for them last season. Yep. Um, but they, they collected this group of guys, I mean, they obviously had an awesome starting pitching staff too, um, but it was kind of like they, their main goal was to focus on one thing, and the Mariners were more like, we're going to be more well-rounded, um, so we're going to get this great starting pitching staff, we're going to get these great relievers, you know, guys who are multifaceted in the game, you know, Ichiro... Right. You know, hits a ton. He still he stole bases. Then Um, he's a great you know great fielder. Um, I don't know. It's it's at the end of the day, it's all you know objective and arbitrary. And you know, you know, you have you have things like an octopus can pick the World Cup winner better than certain models. So uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's hard to say you know one thing is right over another. Um, But it seems like the the, the theme with that Mariners team was being well rounded, you know, making sure that there weren't too many holes, you know, at any position or any facet of the game.
0: Which is that inherently harder to to recreate? Of fi- finding kind of whether or not they're, they're five very well sharpened tools, but finding these like these kind of five five tool players over and over um, is is a difficult process. I, I would imagine it's a more difficult process than to find these t- kind of, in, in theory, you know, two tool players mm-hmm. um, and just, just look for that archetype over and over.
1: Yeah, I think um, one thing to keep in mind is that as more and more data has been collected and more has been at the fingertips of GMs and coaches, it's also at the fingertips of the players. So they, you know, if they're smart and they have good business sense, and or if they're Asians are smart and they have good business sense... They're the ones who can make arguments for this is how much money I want. This is how many years I want. I'm like this player, and he got this, so give me that Mm because i deserve that. So I think, you know, not that at that time there weren't big contracts that were, you know, put out there. I mean, my heart still breaks for the whole A-Rod, you know, fiasco around that time where we had him and then we didn't. Um, But, you know, there were still big contracts. There were still big trades going on. Um, I think that as more data has become available, it's become available for every party. So I think that um, the players have become smarter. Um, You know, they, you know, people are more competitive then, they're competitive now, but um, you have guys who may or may not want to go to certain teams, certain markets for whatever reason. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, there are some teams that think that they need to make big moves and you have guys like Dombrasky who's not afraid to pull the trigger on mm. spending a ton of money and owners like, you know, John Henry and people who are like, I I'm gonna give you a blank check. Spend as much money as you need and right. that might not be the answer for, you know, let's spend a lot of money on one guy. Maybe the answer is let's, you know, parse it out a little bit. Put together a more holistic view of, of what a team should be so
0: yeah it's interesting i mean uh this this particular mariners team isn't even the one that gets hoisted um from a from a historical perspective it's it's the uh it's the 95 team that that was the first playoff team in franchise history that. Um, that is still, unfortunately, the, the beacon of, of success in, in the franchise's history, I would, I would say, if you had to pick one team. Mm-hmm. Um, so this team is just, I think everyone knows it, how weird it was. And, yeah. and it was surrounded, Brooke ended with, uh, the following two seasons were, were both 90-win seasons where the M's missed the playoffs, actually. Um, so, so it wasn't this complete out-of-nowhere situation, but you had this you know much, much more real regression to the mean afterwards. Um, so, so who knows if, if that number will ever get eclipsed? If it ever does get eclipsed, it's probably going to be by a more talented team uh, than than those one Mariners ever were. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's possible. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, all right. Well, well, that that was the five. Uh, any other big trends that you're seeing this this baseball season that that have just been driving you nuts? Or
1: <laughs> socks have been doing good. Big Sox fan. Um, but I think uh, one thing to keep in mind, and I mentioned it before. Um, is that ESPN? A lot of these broadcast you know, companies are are businesses, and they, you know, they want to make it interesting for fans and fun for fans, and they throw these stats up there, and it's always just to take things with a grain of salt. You know, you hear a lot of guys come out and say, "This is my model. This is perfect," and it's not, and you know, things go poorly. So, um, but yeah, I'm I'm excited to uh, to watch baseball for the rest of the season. You know, it's been a long time. It's weird that. At least in Boston, to go to a game and hat and gloves, but uh, mm. getting used to it. So
0: yeah, right. Yeah, Welcome to the city. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so so that that'll do it on, for uh, the, the stats-focused podcast. I'm sure we'll we'll kind of revisit these things, uh, maybe as the season goes on. That was Colin Clapham talking stats. Thanks to Colin for coming on, and thanks to Stitcher for taking in Boyd meets World on their website. Very exciting development for the brand. See you next week.